0: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit
1: me. Welcome to the grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold of hand. 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult. As hands like ace king are removed from the grid whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts we're gonna have some fun you got
0: the cards dealer i'm feeling it hit me yeah i got swagger they see me see me straight.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Poker Grid. I am here with a very special guest, one Bill Chen. He is a two-time World Series of Poker champion, very well known for writing the math of poker with Jared Enkenman. And he's also played high stakes poker for a very long period of time playing in the WSOP for a decade, winning more than 1.9 million in live tournament and earnings, and also bringing together like-minded folks together in the so-called math house, including past grid guest Terrence Chan and also Matt Harlenko, who as we will discover is kind of a guardian angel of this particular episode. Um, in the past few years, Bill has been super busy with other projects so you might not have heard from him as much in the poker world, which is one reason I'm very excited to get this interview. He's been very busy at his job at Susquehanna International Group, which is an investment company right in my neck of the woods, and he currently leads a new division in sports analytics. He's also an active Go, Bridge, and Chess player. I actually first met Bill because I was teaching him chess, and he quickly became an expert through those lessons. He was recently on one of two official SIG teams at the U.S. Amateur Team East, a highly competitive event in which SIG won first place. Right now, he is here with me in the studio. Thank you so much, Bill, for joining me.
0: Uh, Thank you, and I'm glad to be on the show. By the way, the other team won the uh, amateur team East.
1: Yeah, I tried to obfuscate that <laughs> I in know. The intro. <laughs> I just
0: want to make that clear. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but seriously, Bill, so we, we've got a very interesting hand. When I first tried to get Bill on the grid, he spends a lot of his time in Dublin, Ireland these days. So I had to, to grab him on one of his visits to Philadelphia. He couldn't really come up with a hand. So I mined the archives and I found one that I was just praying was a perfect combo for us. It was from the twenty ten three thousand dollar horse event and you were heads up with the one and only Phil Ivy for your third and Ivy's eighth bracelet at the time. I'm actually just gonna read the description from Poker News. Oh, I was
0: how they say it now. Your theoretical third. <laughs> like if you had one you would have gotten a third.
1: <laughs> right. This if you if you, oh, right. you were you were down to heads up against Phil Ivy. Right, so. right, right. This is the uh description of the hand on Poker News. It's a hold'em hand in the horse event. So you're down to heads up, you raise the button, and Phil Ivy called from the big blind. Ivy then led into you on a flop of ten of hearts, ace of spades, and two of hearts. You called, and the turn came the nine of clubs. Then on the turn, Ivy bet and you put in a raise. Ivy called that raise. To see the seven of hearts, so that completes the the front door flash, fall on the river. Ivy then checked to you and put in a check raise after you bet. Yep. So at that point, you decided to fold, and you slipped down to what was $1.1 million, which was apparently a, a, a big deficit to, to Phil Ivy, who had a, a big chip lead at that point. And you did end up losing the heads-up match. And ended up getting 200k, and certainly a nice little consolation payday.
0: I do remember those three hours. It was also the same day as the wedding of a couple of uh, my my friends, Brad Yost and uh, Liz Nahikian, <laughs> that I was actually supposed to kind of help out with, but I was in a tournament.
1: <laughs> Wait, so you, you this, was this this famous wedding? By the way, guys, this is like a year before I became friends with Bill. Funnily enough. I'm sure I would have probably been at the final table if I was friends with him at that point. But uh, this was the famous wedding that you helped organize.
0: That's a little bit of an exaggeration. They had uh, twelve of their like, uh, you know, closest uh, relatives and friends and you know mothers and everything. It was it was at the at the Venetian, and I did spend a bit of time organizing it uh, before I played, and I was I played thinking. Okay, this is a horse tournament. I really have to play it (laughs) because this is one of the best tournaments for me. But uh, I'll be able to attend all the wedding festivities unless I make like the third day.
1: Understandable. And you miss the wedding entirely right like 100% or did you, were you able to like join some kind of after party
0: no they did their vows uh during um the dinner break from the horse tournament so uh i was able to go to the venetian and i had a car waiting for me they probably saw me rush out after the i do <laughs>
1: oh my god that's so sweet oh, oh my god yeah. what a good friend you are so are they still married did it work out
0: uh yes oh. i i i saw uh, brad Just a few days ago, he still works uh, for us at SIG, and he seems uh, pretty happy. And they have one child, and I think uh, either the second one's on their way or they're planning.
1: So going back to the hand, I'm going to recap it a little bit because the the poker news description was a little bit wordy. Um, So basically, it's heads up. You raise the button. Phil calls. The flop is ace, ten, deuce with the ten and the deuce of hearts. Mm -hmm. And Phil... Leads into you, you call nine offsuit on the turn. Bill bets again, you raise, then on the river. After Phil calls, there's a seven, and then he puts in a check raise. So a very interesting, unusual line. I mean, I was kind of excited when I saw this hand history because I can't imagine that this line comes up very often, right? First the lead, then the, the raise on the turn, and then the check raise on the river.
0: Yeah, the lead was uh, uh, is a little bit unusual when you raise, especially um, uh, if he knows he's against an aggressive player in limit hold'em and would be able to check raise most of the time. Also, Phil like, probably knows he has an advantage or feels he has an advantage me in four of the five games. So he might not play as aggressively in Limit Hold'em because he feels he's an advantage in in the other games. Ah,
1: so the fifth one that he feels like you might be as good or better at would be the Limit Hold'em. That's right. Okay, gotcha. So I, I, of course, when I said this hand and we were trying to think of one, I said, well, Bill, like, you know, you have to tell me what you had in this hand and I'll see if it's still available.
0: Right, I didn't know. (laughs) So
1: tell me about that because you're obviously, I mean, you're... What happened
0: 10 years ago? (laughs)
1: You got check raised by Phil Ivy on the river in a heads up pot. Like, it is strange that somebody, I mean, your your IQ is very high, right? You're a certified genius, correct? (laughs) Sorry, I don't mean to embarrass you. I mean,
0: my memory is pretty terrible. I mean, (laughs) I forget where I put my keys, like, all the time. And I've had this problem, like, since I was young. I've tried stuff like, you know, playing the silly card game where what's it called oh memory right <laughs> where, where you try to turn up i got pretty good at that but it, it still didn't rem- help me remember where my keys were so <laughs>
1: well fortunately your your good friend Mar- matt harlenko who was obviously following the final table i assume he probably had some kind of peace as you must have like done some kind of action sharing so he's probably very invested
0: by the way i probably would remember the hand the day after or the next year, or even the year after that.
1: But it's been a while. It has been a while. you play a lot of different games. Right. But after I told you this hand history, you kind of guessed correctly, actually, um, as you had the queen jack off. Right. So basically on the flop you called because you have lots of equity and then you decided to raise on the turn. Can you kind of take us through those
0: decisions? Yeah, well, the flop call was... Uh, kind of interesting. Usually when I raise on the button and uh, the big blind defends, I mean, it's very unusual for them to lead. And I can tell you now, if they lead, I usually just call. I pretend that I bet and he called for the purposes of the hand. And that that's just kind of a mental simplification that I do. I think it's right for them to check to me most of the time, because this is like a button raise. I, I'm not necessarily i mean i'm doing it on 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 a wide range of hands but on an ace high flop especially it's frequent that i'm going to just you know take a shot at, at the pot here so i guess there are some hands i might check but usually if the, the player leads I, I i call the exceptions to that is when i have almost nothing i might just fold
1: and you might occasionally raise or no you think you know I raise range?
0: yeah i have to think about when to raise because if you really have a good hand here like say i flopped a set or something then i could just wait until the turn to raise and get like induce them to make a bigger bet there or uh, whatever.
1: Aren't you known for being part of the team that solved the limit hold'em?
0: We worked, I mean, certainly nowadays there's a limit hold'em solution, but I I think solved is kind of, um, you know, a pretty aggressive word. We knew how to play more Closer to the optimal solution than others, I would say.
1: Right. So basically what you're trying to say is that it's not like it was mapped out exactly what the correct decision is in every situation. It was just that this solution played better than any anyone else.
0: Even if I had access to the solution, I didn't have access to my computer. So right. I didn't have like complete memory of these several quadrillion paths that things could come down. Like with all of these things, you, you just have to in, uh, have intuitive, like mm-hmm. you have to make shortcuts and have, have an intuitive ideas because it, it's sort of like you, you can't remember all the trees of chess openings, right? If you play an opening, you, you have to remember themes, Sort of. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> we
1: definitely—if you didn't remember this hand, heads up against Ivy, getting check raised in the river—I believe that you didn't remember the the tens of thousands of branches in the lemon holtham tree, right? Right.
0: But uh, it's certainly other people like the solution is there now, so you you can play like uh, one of the computers that plays the optimal solution. You you can remember as many trees as you want, and you'd be pretty good at it.
1: Basically, if you're in a game at a point in a game where you get to spar. Um, you know, endlessly against something that plays better than anyone else, obviously that gives you a huge advantage, right? Right. All yeah.
0: chess players have this ability now, right, for example.
1: Right. That's true. I wonder if it's if it's a little different with chess, though. Anyway. Yeah,
0: I don't know. Not Not too many of the players take advantage of this as much as they could. I mean, I played a game where I played the computer. It is kind of bad to get beaten all the time, but you can do something like, oh... Uh, you know, I get an extra night or something like that <laughs> just practice.
1: That's really interesting. You know, I think this is an <laughs> important distinction because sometimes people do make that mistake even in chess because they know that computers are way better than humans um, and particularly AlphaZero or Leela. Uh, They're
0: amazing, the, yeah.
1: That... They think that the game is solved, especially if they're not really a chess player, that they're more like somebody with an intellectual interest in the chess culture. And that is a misnomer, right? It's just it's more right. like a lexicon issue.
0: Right, right, right. It's solved. Uh, like some of these poker games, uh, especially the heads up ones, are solved in the sense that the computer can beat you, like, like in a chess.
1: Right. But are there any that are solved in that the correct move in every situation is determined?
0: I mean, the solution that CMU had, I think, was a computer solution that took, uh, like a thousand. Uh, CPU years, which means that if you ran it on your computer, it would take a thousand years. But they have many computers. They have many computers at CMU, I guess. And <laughs> which
1: which one are you talking about?
0: Carnegie, the Carnegie Mellon solution. For they they
1: the, the limit hold them
0: on. One. They've shown that it will lose some fraction of some really small fraction of a bet to you every hand. <laughs> Got it. Got you it. know, it's. I I mean, they they've shown a path that if you want to throw more computing power at it. Uh, you can get closer and closer to the optimal solution. Right. I mean, it's not a simple solution you can just diagram. A lot of the solution probably entails mixed strategies with certain hands and things like that.
1: Got it. Um, but the reason I ask that is you have this uh, advanced knowledge because you're working on this um, solution that other people are not as advanced with. But then Phil Ivey goes ahead and leads into you. So clearly that's not part of what you're studying with your solution, right? That's got to be yeah. like a, a, a branch that's not investigated.
0: Oh, yeah. But you can put it in your branch because you can call and assume you bet and he called. <laughs> that's that, 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 that's kind, kind of like a mnemonic trick i guess
1: so that's what you would do yeah so you're you're just using that branch the the check call branch got it yeah okay so bringing us to the
0: nine turn um yeah the offsuit nine came on the turn and it's obviously with queen jack it helped my hand and i thought it was a a pretty good hand to raise with in that uh i have nothing here rate to either have a strong hand by the river like still nothing. It was kind of a question of how nothing queen high is, but I think uh, the the way we both played the hand, queen high doesn't have too much showdown value. Or um, one of the things is if I hit a queen or jack, obviously I just show down at the end.
1: Right. So you raise on the on the turn. Right.
0: Hoping just to take it because I don't know what Phil's uh, bet calling bet folding uh ranges are but as i said he might like these are pretty big bets in terms of the stack size now he might just figure uh well omaha's going up i know i have an john bill in that game you know <laughs> so um he might actually be more likely to fold than say an optimal player here and, and knowingly more likely to fold you know
1: did you have any vision here of like what of a solution or something? Or did you, like when you decided to raise? Well, you, like- you have
0: to raise on like um, semi-bluffs some of the time. And obviously a lot of the semi-bluffs are hearts. Uh, so I think Queen Jack gives you sort of an alternate semi-bluff where you can kind of bluff uh, when some hearts come
1: right now i don't i did not get information from from matt about the suits in this hand would that have mattered we know now that using solvers today like the difference of having like the queen of hearts and the jack of hearts like sometimes it's incredibly um different right like they they really mix very strongly according to the exact suits of each card and sometimes in very mysterious reasons
0: yes so yeah i don't know whether i had the the queen or the jack of hearts you know Um, did Matt say I had one of those? No, no, he didn't mention. He didn't mention.
1: But maybe that would have made a small difference. Like, it would have been Mm. better. But now, the most interesting street of all was was the Seven of Hearts falling on the river. Yeah,
0: it's not a great card for me. (laughs) But I decided to bluff anyway, because, uh, you know, I was just thinking, with Queen Jack uh, and a raise there, um, if if people are playing, you know, there was a description by uh, one of the world champions watching us uh play limit hold'em and what he said was well i saw a guy that you said was bad and he bets with nothing he raises with nothing and calls down with nothing but i watch you guys play and you bet with nothing you raise with nothing you guys call down with nothing so i can't tell the so like heads up you expect like weaker hands than than expected like queen jack actually might win some showdowns if you Show down the river um especially if a heart didn't come if a heart didn't come i might have just shown it down but I, I figured that this hand is bad enough to bluff meaning that i'm not gonna uh, win too many enough showdowns but i'm getting probably get enough folds
1: right so he by the way just to review just to remind everyone that the, the flop was 10 juice of hearts with an ace nine of clubs on the turn so offsuit nine seven of hearts on the river and ivy actually after having led the flop in turn called the turn raise he did check the river right and then you bet and right. at that point he put in a check raise and obviously you folded you have the queen jack off
0: the other um plays the raise re-bluff. but you know i usually that that's a rare <laughs> right Right.
1: we're already in a very rare branch of the game tree so right right so you folded and um at, at that point um You know, you went on, and unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, you did uh, lose the match. But Happens. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you've had a lot of success, of course. But you did not remember this hand, but you did remember the wedding. Is there anything else you remember from this confrontation against Ivy?
0: He's a pretty tough all-around player, but I already knew that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I also, like, I don't presume to know how Phil's mind works, but I also saw him... Uh, do something that I have a hard time doing. It feels that he learned how to play against like all the players at the table so like he would adjust to I, I don't know if you know saw the list of people at the final table but they're all like pretty tough players and like i could see him adjust and kind of take advantage of uh, how, how certain players play and so so maybe by the end he knew a lot more about my game than, than before you know
1: right yeah that's something that of course people are are constantly praising phil ivy about for his yeah. incredible adaptability now that you've been revealed your own holding from 10 years ago can you Uh, guess what phil ivy had because i actually know matt harlenko talked to phil ivy after the hand 10 years ago and he sent me an email recently and he just told me what phil had
0: oh well so there's
1: some informational asymmetry gone on right right
0: right right i mean the obvious thing is a heart flush right (laughs) i mean that i mean he he would uh so it was ace ten two he let out uh and then Uh, he led again on the turn and called a raise and checked raise on, I mean, so I would say, uh, and and what type of heart flush? Well, he would defend a lot of hands in a big blind, like probably 70-ish percent of the hands. So my guess, like, it's probably something pretty surprising. He might have even bluffed me out, but my guess would be a heart flush
1: you're wrong it's not a heart flash keep guessing
0: okay um my other guess would be some type of set but uh it's kind of weird that he wouldn't just put in the third raise with a set
1: on the turn you mean on the turn
0: because i could easily have a draw and he doesn't want to give me a free draw i think that that would be uh unusual The, the the other possibility is of course jack eight so so i would guess a set or jack eight no no um the other thing would be kind of a bluff on a river but the question is what hand did he have to play such that he would have a bluff i know
1: what idiot would make a big bluff in this spot with a specific hand
0: right like what hand missed maybe eight seven ish
1: (laughs) well there was a seven on the the river, but but... yeah it's not good enough you think at that point to call your bet yeah probably not probably not probably
0: a bluff Still, tell me the hand
1: Okay, well, it, you know, only a really, really great player would ever conceive of making a bluff in the spot with this hand. Yeah, of course. So, no, I mean, I'm trying to give you so, a hint. Only a really, really strong player would think of this. Like, or you could say, like, do you you play this trash? Oh. This is the cliche, like, you turn over and you like, you play that trash?
0: Oh, he had, like, something like 6'5", or?
1: <laughs> no. Eight. You play that trash? Like what what kind of bluffs could you have on this on this uh board? Ace 10, 9, do seven? What what type of trashy bluffs might somebody have?
0: Ace 10, 9, do seven. I don't know. I mean I, I could I could name all sorts of hands, which which <laughs> <laughs>
1: you're not you're not getting it <laughs> sorry guys sorry guys like no, how I, do i not... give you a hint to get this okay wait a second so only okay like, i said only a great player let me just flip it and say only a really horrible maniac player would make such a terrible bluff with this hand in this spot on the river only somebody really bad like of course i'm joking because it's phil ivy it's but, Phil
0: Ivey, yeah. but only
1: only somebody who was really a whack-a-mole would play this way by the river
0: yeah it's probably some hint i'm not getting
1: think about broadway cards
0: Okay, well, I mean, all Broadway cards kind of beat me, <laughs> so he could have Queen Jack also.
1: Yes, bingo. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that. Queen Jack okay, there you go. That that
0: makes sense. I mean, that that he would try the check raise on the river. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that was a well played hand by Phil of of, of the very many uh, well played hands.
1: Yeah, great hand by both of you. I mean, all a really hilarious hand, and it's kind of an example of. When you didn't have that hold card cam in every like tournament. Yeah, I was thinking you said yeah. bluff,
0: so he had to have a worse hand. I'm like, what worse hands can he have?
1: Right, exactly. No, he had the exact same hand as you, which is so perfect for the grid, as this is the Queen Jack off episode. Yeah, yeah. So, that's,
0: I guess that's why you chose it, yeah.
1: I was going to choose it anyway, but then when Matt told me what he had, it's like icing on the cake, no doubt. Yeah,
0: I, I guess we had the same hand, and we had sort of the same ambitions for the hands, and I don't know whether he had, like, a heart or not, but, you know, it's... Yeah, No, it was a good play. Like, I played my hand fairly routinely, and I think he played his hand, like, more creatively, I would guess.
1: Yeah, although, you mean, you think that the turn raise is pretty standard, whereas, like, leading the flop and then check raising the river are a little bit more creative?
0: Yeah, I think the check raise on a river is a little more creative, because... Usually, you check hands on the river that you have think have some showdown value, but after I bet, uh, you know, to, to stick in a raise is, is, is pretty, I mean, he probably thought, okay, well, I might just, like, do something like showdown a worse hand or even Queen Jack. That hand wasn't in initially a bluff, but if he check raises, he can get me off some, not only the same hand with Queen Jack, but some thin value bets, like... He might have gotten me to fold, say, ace three with that play. Right. I mean, I I was talking to people, Terrence, and, you you know, people were saying, oh, well, I wouldn't fold top pair there. I'm like, eh, really? I don't know. (laughs) You mean
1: you wouldn't or they wouldn't? Um, or one wouldn't
0: well they say they wouldn't so i'm, I'm assuming that means one wouldn't <laughs> but, I, see, I see um i, I don't know I, I mean i might have tried value betting again it, with the pair of bases thinking that he actually does have to just call with a 10 or something like that <laughs> but um also or you know if he had like pocket jacks even or, or, or something weird like that And then fold it to a raise. But I'm certainly going to fold Queen Jack to a raise. I I think it was a good play. I don't buy him. Yeah, really...
1: And a really great, like, historic throwback, no doubt. To, you yeah,
0: I helped him win a tournament. So, right. like, like we were at a lot of, uh, I think we were only like at 10, at some point we were at 10 bets. So this might have been when we were at 20 bets, but still it's a significant chunk of the uh, chips in play.
1: Oh, yeah, big jump up for him. Now, I did want to go back to something um, we talked about just briefly earlier. You are a, a certified genius and, you know, shows up in a lot of your work. I don't
0: have a certification, really. <laughs>
1: Well, so, no I really don't. Okay, but you are—you know—I'm good told at math. Me, Okay, you told me you, you once were tested for your IQ when it was very yeah. Bad.
0: When I was a kid, I was a lot smarter than.
1: <laughs> this is why I'm talking about this—not to okay. embarrass you, but it's partly because you know some people are ashamed of having a bad memory or they think maybe they're not that intelligent if they're not good at remembering things so obviously this story kind of shows that you know even like really significant events very intelligent people forget how do you reconcile that well
0: i think we have the same number of brain cells right so it's basically just how our brains work and remembering uh things like uh, you know um Bob Hammond, uh, I, I talked with him very recently, and, and I asked him about his memory. And he's like, you know, many times, like 12 times, 14 times uh, world champion of Bridge. And he told me, if you turn the cards one by one out of a deck of cards, he has no chance of remembering them. It's just like in the context of the game Bridge, he remembers it. Just like the study with like chess masters don't do, if it's sort of just a random, let's just randomly throw pieces on the board. Chess masters don't do better or much better than random people remembering the configuration. But if it's a chess configuration, they remember it.
1: Right. True. But I mean, there's still a lot of variation. Like there's certainly a lot of great poker players who would remember almost every hand yeah. in a heads up battle, especially against Phil Ivey. Certainly,
0: if you have photographic memory, that's definitely an advantage. But you certainly don't need a great memory to be like good at math. That's why I chose math. It was a field that required the least amount of memory. Why is that? Because it, it's like kind of the fundamental uh, subject uh, that... Um, you know, like physics is based on math, right? And uh, biology and chemistry is based on physics and things like that. So, so uh, it's it's just like more fundamental, uh, you know, uh, and what what you remember is like, only in math can you actually prove something is true. And it's all because you say, I assume these axioms and I get a proof. You don't, Actually, ever prove anything in that, that that happens in reality? Because you know, math is kind of a system of equations and axioms, kind of outside of reality. That we try to map to reality as best we can. So yeah, math takes, I would think, the least amount of memory. I would say because of that, it does take a lot of uh, thinking and kind of creative thinking. But. I mean, that's why I chose, that's part of the reason I chose math.
1: Now, what um, I'm wondering, I'm not sure this is true for anybody, but is there potentially even a relationship between having like a average memory or like less than stellar and having this uh, great imagination because you don't have like all these facts and figures clogging up your brain? Do you think that's possible?
0: I, I think that's possible. I mean, I, I said we have a, roughly the same number of brain cells, like same order of magnitude, just how, how you use it. I'm not a neurobiologist or a psychologist, but it feels that if you don't have too many like fixed memories, uh, you have more room to imagine and wonder.
1: That's really fascinating. At least it's good to look at the positive. When did you realize that you were um, very good at math?
0: Well, I don't know because I think we were talking earlier. I don't remember anything from before I was four, and when I was five, um, you know, I I was pretty good at math. <laughs> You know, I could add and multiply numbers and do the things that, like, most five-year-olds didn't, like, do. And I was actually very happy to, like, think about math and stuff like that. I remember uh, when I actually got in first grade, they put me in third grade math because they said, oh, you're good at math. But then we learned that, you know, three times four was the same as four times three. And I asked my teacher why, and she said, well, you know, three plus three is six, plus three is nine, plus three is 12. And you know, if you do four, you get eight and you get 12. So see, they're the same. I'm like, okay, this isn't a great reason. And then I realized, oh, you, you have the reason that if you put like a four by three grid, you have 12 dots. And if you turn around, it's three times four. And <laughs> I guess my, my teacher said, oh yeah, but my, my uh, explanation was just as good. okay (laughs) so then they moved you to
1: sixth grade math after that no
0: i was just interested in you you said that in
1: third grade so you were like nine or ten
0: yeah but they they put me in third grade math when i was in first grade this is (laughs) it was kind of funny Uh, my dad was one of the early like like 1975 he became a professor at auburn he was one of the few chinese professors there at the time now of course you know auburn like the faculty of any university is a lot of asian professors but he was one of the first ones in 1969 you know uh the the universities in alabama got integrated <laughs> so the, the, this was actually not too much uh after that but yeah i was like probably the only asian kid in school
1: oh wow I know, one wait, of
0: the only two wait, one of <laughs> the three. only asian
1: kids in school so there were, there, are you saying that there was like some racism as well against
0: uh, there were but yeah but they also got this idea, oh, Asian kids are good at math.
1: <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Which, yeah. um, Which, in your uh, case, obviously it was true, but is, uh, is, is also a stereotype. It's not always true. Yeah.
0: You know, I was fortunate to have the opportunity to have all these like math contests uh, in high school when I was kind of growing up. And uh, there were a couple of professors um, at the university, you know, the Cooperbergs, who who helped me like with like really tough math problems and how to think about them where was that at they're a man and wife they're professors at the uh university where which are you auburn university auburn university where i want to and uh the kids were in our school district, like uh, Greg and Anna. Greg is the math professor at UC Davis now, but they really helped me with kind of my thinking and things like that. I just really liked to do like competition math problems when I was like uh, a kid in high school. And, you, you know, I'm glad that there was an avenue for me to do that. If, if they weren't like competitions, I don't know if I would just kind of study math for the beauty of it. I mean, you play competitive, of chess at the highest level so you you understand what it means to get your adrenaline flowing and playing yeah I, I don't get that when i play chess when i did like the math contest that did get my kind of adrenaline flowing and the same when i played kind of poker at the world series So that competitive avenue probably helped me be better at math than I would have been.
1: So this third grade problem where you had the the four by three and the three by four and you you asked the teacher, why are they the same? And she gave you uh, an answer and you came up with this other answer that was much more visual in nature. It was like you showed her that it was a a grid that could be reversed. That kind of visualization, I think, is so interesting because that's not really what people think of when they think of math. They think of math talent being be, being able to multiply two numbers quickly.
0: Well, there's a lot of different types of math talent. I mean, a lot of people are less visual, and, but they're they're, they're much uh, better at some other problems. I, I think I'm better at the math problems that are visual, but also the math problems that have to deal with, like gambling and probability and uncertainty and things like that.
1: Probability, and there is a lot of spatial relationships and probabilities too, which I, I learned from you when we were studying OFC open face Chinese poker. So this whole concept of the grid is that there's 169 possible poker hands, assuming that you count the offsuit and the suited ones, and that this right. grid is kind of flattened for study purposes in the same way that you would study a chessboard. It's kind of like a poker board. Right. Um, anything interesting mathematically that you can kind of point out about that spatial relationship of that 169 hands
0: it's an awesome representation right i mean it's not really 13 by 13 it just happens to be because all of the uh, pocket pairs happen to line up on a diagonal right and you only have to put them in once because you can't have a suited pocket pair and I think it's a great representation and it definitely helps some people visually think about starting hands because you can kind of color out like whatever game you're playing, limit or no limit, you can kind of see the starting hands uh, that you should play and kind of evolve them. Similar to jam or fold, like push or fold, like if you're less than 10 big blinds, what hands you should push with in what position. If you can kind of visualize it, it makes much more sense than remembering whether like king eight or king nine is in, in your range of hands or not
1: or yeah or like visualize that outer border of like the weakest stuff that you still jam with
0: yeah it's a great learning tool
1: so uh, when you um talk about throwing back to third grade math what do you think is the weakest thing about the way that people teach math these days is it what what would you like to see more of Uh, you know i don't know
0: i haven't really um interacted too much with how kids learn math nowadays I, i was thinking you're thinking like Nine and 10 year olds or later on?
1: Even later on, just in general. It's true you're not an expert in the education field. I just wonder if you have like some general thoughts that you wish people learned more probability or something like that. It's opposed to geometry.
0: Well, I enjoy geometry. I think one of the things is people should learn more probability and statistics than, say, calculus. I mean, uh, calculus is it's, it's it's a good field. It's good to learn all that. But um, when was the last time you had to integrate, like, x times sine x or whatever? I mean, people use probability all the time, you know? And yeah. I, I think the problem is people may think, oh, well... You, you have continuous functions like you choose a number randomly uniformly between zero and one and then to actually get the answer to some question you need to eventually like do an integral or something like that but i i think like simple probability and statistics uh are probably more important and more relevant even in like Um, statistical significance like you, you flip a coin it's either heads or tails you flip 100 coins like if you get 60 heads do you believe that the coin is biased or not I mean that that's uh, sort of an interesting uh, question you know and people need to know okay well these guys did, did some tests is are they statistically significant or not you know even even that type of knowledge which may seem a little esoteric really is not really is relevant to what we do today like there're a lot of issues like on a political level or even the debate about, like, containing viruses or whatever, that having, like, a little bit more knowledge of math would make people a little bit better. So, yeah, I think probability and statistics should be taught more. There should be more emphasis on problem-solving and... Uh, You know, all all the word problems that people hated in the back. (laughs) I think people should actually do more of them because it's not how you integrate this function or another, which is basically like what your calculus homework is. Take the derivative over, integrate all these functions. It's like a computer can do that basically how to set up a problem into a mathematical construct and solve it. And also, for example, like the quadratic formula is probably one of the first formulas people learn when they're in algebra. But I don't know if you remember how to do those things, but you can complete the square. I'll give you an example, uh, make one up quickly, like x squared uh, minus 3x plus two equals a zero. Uh, if you wanted to solve that problem, you can use a quadratic formula You can just look at it and kind of guess that the solutions are one and two, or you can kind of complete the square. And completing the square actually gives you a process to solve the problem and kind of teaches you uh, how to do it
1: fun. Wow, I gotta look that up. So. Um, but yeah, this is this is a very interesting. And by the way, I tweeted about this episode. Um, I mentioned the fact that in the math of poker, there's a formula for geometric pot growth. And I find it very interesting because when you first starting playing No Limit Hold'em, it's kind of fascinating how quickly the pot can grow when you make, you know... When you
0: go pot, pot, pot.
1: right Exactly. 8 to 216. It, it feels like that's a, really a big pot going into an 8 BB pot. And so the reason that this is interesting and topical now is right now people are posting lots and lots of graphs about the potential exponential growth in a pandemic type situation. Yeah, and how it's not—it does—it defies human intuition.
0: Well, it's sort of the worst case, and I guess I like to say something about exponential growth. It's one of these things that. In certain models, it can happen. Like if, say, say there was no uh, precautions about the virus and people just went out and sneezed on each other, it would probably grow exponentially, right? I mean, but the, the thing is that in any of these things, it's kind of uh, what I call a regime problem. Nothing grows exponentially forever, right? Right. So it's interesting. There's this exponential growth in this particular... Any place you see exponential growth, you mean exponential growth in this regime, in this like period of time or period of space. And then on the boundaries, the question is kind of what happens, right?
1: What do you mean the boundaries? You mean when it's over?
0: Yeah. Like, um, like you can even see in China that the number of cases is decreasing and the number of new cases especially is decreasing and they don't really have any new cases except from Wuhan anymore. So it's not like, oh, uh, there were like uh, 80,000 cases in China and then it went to 160 and so on and so forth. There's this kind of gradual uh, at first, exponential increase, but kind of slow down because of the draconian measures they took, certainly. But, right. I mean, and at some point, there's a limit of humans who can get it. One thing people should consider is that if we coordinated, we could probably uh, sort of shut it down and do the same thing as uh, happened in China, right, uh, in about like four to six weeks. The question is whether it's worth uh, the economic loss of, like, four to six weeks in a year uh, out of the year to do it. But maybe it is. Who knows?
1: By the way, we were recording this in, um, what is it, the second week of March? March uh, uh- 11th is the date and um 10th right right march 10th is the date so um obvious this is going to come out later so this could be a little bit of an interesting time capsule into how wrong or right we are but you know obviously it's a, a very um, dangerous situation and i'm fortunate enough that i can work from home so it's, it's a tough situation especially for people who are you know living paycheck to paycheck no doubt so i'm just telling people you'll increase your tips to people out there who are you know, struggling getting a lot less business. Is there any visual representation of exponential growth that can help somebody? Because I've read a lot of people saying like, this is not a human concept. So if you're not a math person, it just defies human logic. And that's one of the reasons people don't get worried about it till it's too late. Well, just um,
0: think something that doubles every day. I mean, that's exponential growth, right?
1: I mean, there's that famous parable of, like, the chessboard. The visual right. the visual representation of it being, like, one grain of rice and then doubling it each day. and
0: Yeah, after the first 32, it doesn't seem so bad. But then after 64, he has to be giving more grains of rice than are available in the world or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's why people think of any large numbers like the national debt or whatever. <laughs> People can't conceive. People can't really conceive. Like, what's a trillion dollars like? I can't think of a trillion. And these metrics of if you had a dollar bill, this would be the number of times you could wrap it around the earth. Uh, really doesn't uh, do anything i i i think uh when things are normalized people can think more about it it's like you think about how much is 10 trillion well maybe there's like 350 million americans it 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 means that if it it divided about over 350 million americans it's uh what it's like thirty thousand or something like that per uh per american so i mean Uh, you everybody can kind of conceive of if I had 30,000 in my bank account some people would be most people I would guess would be really really happy some people uh would be pretty sad (laughs) Bloomberg Um, but people can conceive people know what you can buy with 30,000
1: so so visual representations is like (laughs) it's not something um that is easy when it comes to very large numbers or exponential growth but yeah that's that's interesting. Now, at your firm, Susquehanna International Group, you um, do hire a lot of poker players and chess players. Well, um, that's
0: probably why we're getting the sports betting first, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. We, we, I mean, the firm was founded by poker players. And, uh, you know, Jeff, Jeff Yass just uh, spoke on the sports and gambling panel at uh, Sloan a couple of days ago and made a case that basically... Uh gambling on sports is uh can be um rather affordable entertainment instead of actually going to the game or going to the movies, you can um bet like ten bucks on your you can even bet a hundred bucks on your favorite team. It only costs you a couple of dollars in expectation you know also having like betting and gambling markets gives you some intuition about what's going on. You know, that's why uh, they have uh, the, the the markets on the, the presidential elections and, and things like that.
1: Those have very, very low um, betting limits, but they exist like the University of Iowa, I believe.
0: Uh, University of Iowa, uh, right, and, and pre- predict it. And, but, you know, on the exchanges in Europe, like matchbook and betfair they have political contracts that that you can bet on the winner i think that's informative
1: yeah and i mean right now it you know if people are going to be spending more in times indoors of course the ability to entertain yourself online i mean i'm with you the problem is that it's so logical it's great to be able to play poker online we have poker stars in PA right now we have online gaming in pa and nj but terrific i guess the issue is that unfortunately there are people they're a lot of emotions are tied in with money and psychology and sometimes it's very difficult but right now you're leading up the sports division but because um sports betting is not federally legal so it's legal in certain states obviously Nevada. it's definitely starting up in pa, PA and, uh, okay. everywhere and that's where susquehanna is located but right now you're in ireland because that's where the actual sports analytic business takes place
0: that's where the betting takes place now and You know, it's fun to make models, and I think our specialty is making models during the game like as the game changes from first and ten to um, like second and four or whatever to update the model and uh, figure out what's uh, what's kind of going on there. I think in Europe a lot of the betting is in-game and when it goes to the United States we kind of expect that too. Uh, we also, since, you know, SIG is a Wall Street firm and our sports betting markets are still much smaller than a lot of uh, other financial markets.
1: So that's why you're not playing as much poker anymore of course we miss you in poker and i'm sure you miss poker to some extent yeah can you give us like one of your favorite world series of poker memories besides this queen jack versus queen jack against phil ivy
0: i don't know I, i i think uh my favorite World Series memories are just kind of my friends winning, like Matt, you know. I, I think I still remember going, when he won his bracelet, it was like the last event before the main event, and uh, we went out for smoothies then. I also remember Jared's uh, victory in his, like the mixed games. He he won his bracelet in, uh, I think, an eight-game mixed. I might be getting it wrong. Could be a 10-game mixed, but uh, I, I I remember the hands there. I remember all the time watching. I do remember the times watching when he lost too, when he was heads up. So I'm glad people kind of rooted me on. And
1: <laughs> what do you miss most about being in the poker scene? Um,
0: uh, I think kind of the the camaraderie, like the poker house. You know, just being there, not not just having the big party every year, even though that that was a big event, but just being able to interact and talk with people about hands and things like that. But I get some of that in sports trading because. You know, we act like a team in Dublin. We, we exchange our ideas and we try to make good trades. And like, uh, it, it's not that like I tell them what models to do and they just do it. <laughs> you know, it's like because of sports betting, it's like anything else. If you're trading NBA, you really have to understand basketball. It's It's not... Like, you can just follow this mathematical model. Like, uh, maybe a player's injured. Maybe they're not playing as well. Maybe in this situation, this team's going to be better towards the end, things like that. So I'm I'm getting, uh, you know, this is why I kind of liked doing sports betting. I'm getting some of that. But what I miss is, Basically, kind of the camaraderie and the talking about hands and things like that.
1: Yeah, and I know you you always used to have so much fun, um, you know, food, going out, tourism. What would people be surprised to learn about you, Bill?
0: Gee, you probably know a lot more surprises, things that would be be surprising. What surprising thing do you think that other people would... be surprised to learn I think
1: that people would be surprised that you're actually on the top of the list if you go to like an interesting place for the first time I feel like more than most almost any poker players you would actually be most likely to want to go out and see the sites and see the best restaurants and stuff like that like you're not somebody who's going to want to sit in the casino and play every single event
0: right right so people
1: I think would be surprised by that they would think that you would be like just a hardcore grinder and not want to do anything but play
0: Yeah, I've been kind of, um, I guess, tilting towards the uh, hardcore grinder recently, but I think you might have got that impression because, you know, when I was going to these EPTs and things, it was the first time I've been to these places, so... You know, I obviously wanted to explore, yeah. right? And right. in Vegas, you just don't get that much time to explore anything.
1: Yeah, that makes sense actually, because you know you're you're in a, you're in the same place for a long time. I just want to congratulate you again. I mentioned it briefly in the intro, but you recently were in New Jersey for the U.S. Amateur Team East which That's is a right. really cool chess event. There's grandmasters, there's newcomers, there's beginners, there's the top players in the country. And your company team, Susquehanna International Group, actually got first place. It's hugely competitive event. Hundreds of
0: teams. It's over 300, I hear.
1: Yeah. And um, now tell us a little bit about winning that incredible victory for SAG.
0: Well, I, I have to say, our team didn't win. It was the other teams. We had two teams: Sig Puts and Sig Calls, and Sig Calls uh, was the team that averaged about twenty-two hundred, and uh, just like uh, you know, forty other teams there, and they they won uh, best overall team with a six and zero record. Atulia Shetty was kind of our anchor. He was board one, and he's an he, IM. He's an IM. He went six and zero out some good games at the end but you know the the, the other three players you know um eric Mose, uh brian lou and justin burton they're, they're all great justin like increases rating by about 60 points uh playing the liberty bell open right before and i think that just shows kind of the spirit and creativity we have in, in our company <laughs> you, you know I, I think none of these guys like do chess as their their main thing they they, they work for us and they saw pretty hard problems, but so, so, so one thing I think is important is diversity of thinking. Like if you need to solve a problem, people talk about their diversity, but diversity about how to approach a problem is important. So I'm glad that we have a lot of people who are interested in chess. Like we were able to field two teams. Our second team won like best company team. And we were even without a 2,300 player who had to go back f- uh, to, uh, to Eastern Europe for family reasons. I thought it was great.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, it's great to see this company that loves these chess and poker players And some of those names I know also liked poker as well, such as Eric Moss. But yeah, I like that you say that diversity of thinking, because of course, that's one of the reasons why people want diversity, not just to make the world more fair, but also because it's better for the actual companies when you have a lot of different backgrounds and viewpoints and ideas, because... If you're trying to solve problems in the world, that's certainly going to help.
0: I played chess for one year in high school and got to about 1500 and 1600. But, you know, then then in adult life, I took lessons from Jen and got to like 2000. So when I did that, I could see my thinking change, uh, not just about chess, but about like different things so i think i think that just a diversity of how to solve problems and things like that That, that, that's why we have all people that play all sorts of different games engage in all different activities
1: Mm, great point i mean first of all thank you of course i was dealing with some good ray matter there but i think that's a great point for even if you are an adult and you're never going to be like a grandmaster partly because it's very difficult at an older age but also maybe even more relevantly even if you're a genius hint hint bill you're probably not going to become a grandmaster at an older age because if you're a genius at an older age you're probably off making a lot of money for a company or for yourself or solving big worldwide problems well
0: i knew i wasn't going to be grandmaster after like i played pretty hard for a year and got to 1500 but you know i I think like a chess coach like good one like jen uh, the the advantage is they tell you what you have to study you know yeah you can't just like play blitz games all night oh why why isn't my chess game improving (laughs) Well, the problem is, is yeah. all adults
1: are very good at looking for shortcuts, because right. that's the way that you can survive in this world, which is so difficult, and you have so much stuff you have to do. And because adults are so good at shortcuts, I find it is very, very difficult. And they're like translation, like they translate things into English. So it's like, I, if I explain like how you should be thinking about something, instead of visualizing it, they'll start translating it into words. That's really problematic for getting better at chess because chess is not words. It's images of pieces moving around on the board. And probably because you're a mathematician, that comes like super easy to you. But for most adults, very, very difficult. And I find that super fascinating. But yeah, this, this interview has been great, um, Bill. Thank you so much. And yeah, thanks you, you, for inviting me. You have a, a Twitter that you don't really use that often, Bill Chen Poker. But you also have a, a chess blog at SIG. And of course, you have your book, The Math of Poker. Right. Any other way that people can find you?
0: Uh, I think uh, my my Twitter account. uh, I also have a Facebook account. You can also uh, just email me at william.chen at sig, Uh, especially if you're interested in maybe finding a role with us and trading sports or even trading financial products. Yeah.
1: All right, great. Well, you know, I know a lot of poker players listening to that might be interested in that. So great shout out, Bill. And uh, Queen Jack off against Phil Ivey. What an epic hand. Big thank you again to Matt Harlenko for remembering both Bill's hand and Phil Ivey's hand, which made this a double Queen Jack off hand. Fantastic. Thanks again, Bill. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid. Go ahead and subscribe on your favorite podcast network. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings. They really do help. We also have a new mailing list, so go ahead and subscribe to that on thepokergrid.com slash subscribe. Finally, if you're looking for a way to support me and my projects, I'm the Women's Program Director at US Chess, and we're trying to equalize the field in the Mind Sports Arena. You can go to uschess.org and pick a donation of any size. I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to The Poker Grid as we count down 169 hands. No one I never bust, they say I'm lucky, oh no, no need to bluff, with all the
0: cheap tricks up my sleeve, yeah, I got Tyler.